Today we're going to talk about a phrase that has become taboo in Christian circles, but let me start by asking you guys a question. When were you born? How would you answer that question? When were you born? You don't have to throw a year on it. When were you born? On your first birthday. Anybody else? June 22nd. June 22nd. Anybody else? I was born in my 20s. I know someone who was born when they were about five. I know another person born at 18. I'm actually very good friends and close relatives with people who have never been born. You have any idea what I'm talking about? Yeah, there's this little expression in the Bible, and it's called born again. And when we think of the expression born again, we have a variety of reactions to that. When the world thinks of the expression born again, they have a variety of reactions to that as well. Well, today we're going to talk about what it means to be born again. And my hope is that when we leave here today, we understand what it really means, why it's so important to understanding who Jesus is and who we are and why, in fact, Jesus used that term, born again. We're going to be in John chapter 3, but before we do, let's finish up John chapter 2. Last week we ended at verse 22 of chapter 2, so today we'll pick up at 23 to set the stage for chapter 3. We see John 2.23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, he being obviously Jesus. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What that saying in, in modern English is Jesus had no faith in their faith because he knew what was in man. And as we read that, it can go by real quickly, but if we don't understand it, we miss chapter 3 fully. What does it mean when you hear that Jesus knew what was in man? What do you think about? Or does it just kind of go by quickly? He knew it was in people's heart. If someone was extraordinarily fluent in the Old Testament, if, if it was something they just read consistently, there would be a couple verses that would come to mind. 1 Samuel 16.7 and 1 Kings 8.39. We can go to either one of those. I'll pick the 1 Samuel because I'm preaching, right? In the 1 Samuel verse, you'll see something. I'm not going to have a sticky page Bible today. There we go. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, this is when David was anointed king, all right? The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, what did John just say about Jesus? He himself knew what was in man. Who knows what's in man? Only God. Do you understand what John's saying here? There are some people that say, the Bible never says that Jesus was God. Oh my word. It says again and again and again, clear as day in a variety of ways, that Jesus was God. In the New Testament, you can go up to a passage like Revelation 2.23. John is clearly saying Jesus was God. He's also saying in here, uh, when you look at verse 23, he was in Jerusalem and he believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus didn't have faith in their faith. There's a superficial type of faith in Jesus. It's a being impressed by the stuff he does, but not trusting him for who he is. We're going to talk about it today. There are a lot of people who have that type of faith in Jesus. It's not a saving faith. And to do that, we're going to meet somebody who had that type of faith in Jesus, and his name was Nicodemus. Now, I would have loved to use the sermon title for this called Nick at Night. Somebody else did that. I think it was John MacArthur, so I couldn't steal it. So I call it Snake Bit. 
We'll find out why I call it snake bit in a minute. But we're in John chapter 3. And it reads, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it has come from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Interesting little side note. Biblical names are important. What does Nicodemus mean? I'd be floored if one of you knew this, just so you know. What does Nicodemus mean? Conqueror of the people. You'll see why it's a pertinent name in a minute. But today we're meeting a conqueror of the people. This is the only extended friendly dialogue between Jesus and a Pharisee in all the Gospels. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Any idea why he comes to Jesus at night? Nobody knows. I've heard some people say he came at night because he was busy during the day. I guess he could have been, no? I mean, it sounds a little ridiculous. If you flip up to John 19, verse about 38, yeah, 38 and 39, you'll meet another guy, Joseph of Arimathea. Comes with Nicodemus to claim Jesus' body and tells us they come um, when they did because they were afraid of what might happen to them. Nicodemus was curious about Jesus, but afraid people might find out that he was curious. He was a member of the, uh, he was a Pharisee. He was most likely a member of the Sanhedrin, a, a leader of the leaders. This was a man who knew his Bible better than almost anyone else you'd ever meet. He was a leader of the Jews. He was a man who'd be respected and honored by his fellow Jews. And he shows up to Jesus. And what does he say? Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. Do you understand what, how complimentary of a statement that is? Coming from a Pharisee to Jesus. A Pharisee is saying to Jesus, Teacher, clearly you've come from God. God is working through you. That is a tremendous compliment. I, I, I'm off the top of my uh, exhausted head. I can't give you a related... Uh, parallel in our culture, but understand the, the incredible nature of that compliment that Nicodemus is giving to Jesus. Rabbi, clearly you are doing the work empowered by God. And what does Jesus say to him? Well, what would you say if a Pharisee came? Oh, thank you so much, Nicodemus. I'm, I'm honored first that you would come to spend any time with me and to receive such a compliment from you. Thank you so much. Because if, if Nicodemus has got your back, he can really help you out. There's a leader of the Jews. It's a leader of leaders. And, and he's calling Jesus rabbi. And clearly, Jesus can use this. What does Jesus say to him? Thank you? No. You want me to summarize what he says to him? You don't even know God. 
Rabbi, I know that God is working with you. <laughs> Fool, you don't even know who God is. Is Jesus rude? Is he mean-spirited? Don't you think he kind of understood Nicodemus' heart that he really wanted to know? Because the way he answers him, truly, truly, it's like he really wants him to, to, get, to get it. Yep. He was telling the truth out of love. At the end of chapter 2, that's why John tells us Jesus knew what was in people's heart. He knew where, where Nicodemus was coming from. But he also knew what was true. It's important we know what's true. And what is Jesus telling him was true? That he was not in a right standing with God. Why? Quite simply, because he wasn't born again. What does born again mean? Born from above? What do you think of when you hear the phrase born again? Crazy people? I was waiting for that one. When I think of born again, I think of a southern congregation, rural Georgia, no air conditioning in August. Pastor in a heavy wool suit. Everyone's got the fans going. Could be a snake, right? He's like, we all need to be born again. Praise Jesus. That's what I think. I think of, of anger and fire and brimstone and craziness. I think there's a lot of people today, though, that, like, that latch onto that term that aren't like that, that like, like to define themselves by that, but yet don't live that. Thanks for that. Did you? What's this? Would you call it wet water? If I had a fire going here, would you call it hot fire? What's a born-again Christian? It's redundant. Water is wet. Fire is hot. A Christian is born again. The world's hijacked the term. There are people who call themselves born-again Christians. They're usually legalistic, angry people. Ah, to be a born-again Christian, you must speak in tongues. To be a born-again Christian, we're going to talk about what it means. I am not saying people have no ability to speak in tongues. Don't, don't read into that. I am saying very clearly, you don't have to speak in tongues to be a Christian. What I'm saying is the world's hijacked the term born-again. So they laugh. Oh, are you a born-again Christian? Yeah, do you drink wet water? We've lost the term because we've gotten afraid of it. It carries negative connotations, so we don't want to be affiliated as a born-again Christian. We want to be an evangelistic Christian. We want to be a liberal Christian. We want to be a plain Christian. We want to be an Episcopal Christian. How about this, folks? We just be a Christian. An honest-to-goodness, born-again Christian. You don't need the title born-again, but you better understand what it means. I drink wet water. I just call it water. I have a hot fire fireplace. I just say it's a fire fireplace. You understand where I'm going with this? Born again is a redundant term. One thing that riles me up, you might catch wind of this, is when people tell me, I don't follow your interpretation or your tradition of Christianity. Sinfully, I just want to smack them. Is that bad? I don't have a tradition of Christianity of which I follow. I don't interpret the Bible a certain way. I just simply read it and I believe what it says. That's what I tell people. I'm a frog. Listen. Right? Watch. Be honest with me. Am I a frog? You're intolerant. Who said no? That's your interpretation of what a frog is. That's extraordinarily intolerant. You may believe a frog is this. 
a creature that can live in water and on land and lay eggs and, and has a certain DNA to it and has certain body parts, but please, I don't follow that interpretation of what a frog is. To me, a frog is anyone who wants to be a frog and can hop and rib it. Is that ludicrous? What about if you want to interpret your relationship with God based off of that? To me, a Christian is, I don't care what a Christian is to you folks, because who determines what's truth? Do I determine what makes a frog? Or did God determine, here's a frog, boom, I created it. Here's a person, boom, I created them. I've known a person, honest to goodness, true story, an adult male who thought they were a monkey. They were using some uh, illegal substance at the time. But climbing along metal rafters, making monkey noises, telling me they were looking for bananas in a warehouse. The man honestly thought he was a monkey. He was delusional. He didn't yell, you're intolerant. I am a monkey. You just don't think I'm a monkey. But we live in a world where people say, you're intolerant. You don't think I'm a Christian? I'm a Christian. Who are you to say? Doesn't society tell us, don't ever question a person's faith? right? Who are we to judge? It's between them and God. What does Jesus do? Oops. What did he do to Nicodemus? He did. He questioned. And he stated bluntly, buddy, you're not a Christian. He didn't use the term Christian. You understand Jesus had to die and be raised from the dead, but let's play it out that way. Nicodemus, you're not saved, bud. Not at all. And I'll tell you what Nicodemus was thinking. What? Who are you to say to a Pharisee that I'm not in a right relationship with God? Maybe you have a bizarre interpretation of what it means to be saved, but I clearly know because I know the Bible. In our society, well, let's see, I've got to put, yeah, we'll hold on with that for a minute. We'll pause that topic for a minute. In verse 5, I don't want to miss this. There's a little phrase here. It says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What's Jesus talking about? Baptism and Holy Spirit. It's a confusing, uh, confusing thing. Water and spirit. To understand it, we need to understand it how Nicodemus would have. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He was a man rigidly knowledgeable in the scriptures of the Old Testament. When you would hear of water and spirit in the Old Testament, you would think to Nicodemus, and I guarantee this is where he thought, a book of Ezekiel. You think of Ezekiel chapter 35, verse 25 to 27. He wouldn't articulate it that way because it hadn't been marked like that as chapter and verse, but he would have thought of the book of Ezekiel. When you flip to Ezekiel, I'll race you there. When you flip to Ezekiel, chapter 35, and if you can't... Who said that? I was double-checking. Read it, would you? Uh-huh. Third, chapter 35, verse 25 to 27. What's that? Yeah. Would you? Ezekiel? It's there. Ezekiel? Yeah. 35. Mm-hmm. 25? Mm-hmm. Stop 
it was a test. I wanted to make sure, I wanted to make sure that you people actually check what I'm saying. Remember we talked jokingly at the beginning and I said, you want to see what a sermon looks like when you're sleep deprived and your wife has gone back to school? And Nicodemus obviously was more well versed in the scriptures. talk amongst yourselves <laughs> thank you and it says I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh my handwriting actually looks a lot more like 36 now than 35 thank you do you understand what Nicodemus would have been thinking about in the Old Testament, whenever you talk about water and spirit, it's talking about the Holy Spirit. And in this passage in Ezekiel, what is being talked about is a prophetic future event when God would give to people a new heart. He would create a new heart in them. It's not something people could do on their own. It's something that's called being born again. Nicodemus was a Jew, and Jews were heavily works-based, no? Nicodemus thought he was in a right relationship with God because he kept the law and he kept, he kept the rules and regulations that the rabbinical teachers put on. In fact, he made those rules and regulations. And because he kept them so well, he knew that he was in a right relationship with God. And Jesus says to him, you, you're a teacher of the Jews, yet you don't understand the basics of the Bible. Here's what it means to be in a right relationship with God. You can't do it on your own. Only God can do it for you. Because a person can't be born again on their own. It's something that only God can do. All right? Pardon my faux pas on that verse. What's the truth of the matter is simply this. Knowing the truth. What's Jesus conveying? The truth is, to be a Christian, you have to be born again. To believe in God, to be in a right relationship with God, you have to be born again. How do you get born again? Something only God can do. Well, then we're completely powerless to do anything about it. Well, yes and no. We'll talk about that in a second. But you can't just decide one day, I'm a Christian. Boom! God has to draw you. God has to open your eyes. God has to put a new heart in you and fill you with the Holy Spirit. Okay? We're going to talk about what role we play in the process. But here's something that I want you not to miss. We live in a time when we tend to be more concerned with not offending people than with telling them the truth. How many people here know Christian people outside of church? Would you bet your life on the fact that all those people who claim to be Christians are really Christians? Is it any of our business? According to Jesus, it is. Because if we don't tell them what the truth is, if we don't know the truth, that this isn't a special kind of water called wet water. I'm not a special kind of Christian called a born-again Christian. This is simply water. This is simply, God willing, a Christian. And there's no born-again and non-born-again Christian. If we know what the truth of being a Christian really is, don't we owe it to people, if we love Jesus and love them, to tell them? So how do we do it? Well, if you're going to leave here today and start calling up people and say, Ha! You say you're a Christian. Prove it. What does Ezekiel chapter 35 say? Like, uh, wrong chapter. It's 36. You don't know Jesus. You might want to think about your relationship with God. I've told you the story about uh, Aunt Puss, haven't I? Aunt Puss was the Christian. It's Laura's great aunt. She passed away, gosh, probably about two years now in her 90s. Everyone assumed Aunt Puss was a Christian. Assumed, Aunt Puss, assumed, you hear that word? Assumed, Aunt Puss was a Christian. 
when I came to faith, God put a burden on my heart. I don't know why. It's always been there. And it's taken years to get a better glimpse of why, to remove a little arrogance and sin from it, a little bit of arrogance and sin. There's still more to go. But I sat in a, in a large church of, of several thousand when I first came to faith. And, and I looked around, and God put a burden in my heart that that church was full of many people who didn't know Jesus. And I thought, how arrogant of me to, to look at this church and go, ha, some of these people don't even know who Jesus is, and they're sitting here. And my initial reaction was, I'm better than them because I know who Jesus really is. Mm-hmm. That's not what God was telling me. What God was telling me was, there are people who sit in churches that intellectually know who Jesus is, who might call him rabbi and say that God is with him, but they don't trust Jesus. They're not really born again. And why did God put that burden in my heart? I have no stinking idea why he did it back then. I have a little bit of an idea of why he did now, and I'll share that with you. Aunt Puss believed in Jesus, people assumed. And one day I said to my mother-in-law, how do you know Aunt Puss is really a Christian? Because Aunt Puss had a Bible on her bookshelf that I don't think ever came off. Aunt Puss never went to church. She never talked about God. She was a sweet old lady. But there was nothing about her that I saw that made her any different than anyone else. So I, how do you know Aunt Puss is a Christian? Well, she says she's a Christian. This is how I work. Yeah, but how do you know? Because what if she's not? Like she could die any day. What if she's not really a Christian? Well, I just assume she is. I've asked her, and she said she's a Christian. Ask somebody if they're a Christian is a little different question than where I'm going to lead this up. I said, can I call and ask her? Uh, uh, well, you know, if she's not a Christian, we should know. I don't mind if she hates me, but I want to know. Because if she's not, don't we owe it to her to tell her what a Christian really is? Boop, 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 boop. Hello? Hi, Aunt Puss, it's Jonathan. Who? Jonathan, Laura's husband? Oh, how are you? Good? A little small talk. Got some sweat pouring off of my head. <laughs> so, Aunt Puss, um, are you a Christian? Well, of course I'm a Christian. Kind of a bit of irritation with the question. Who am I to ask? What do you mean? Well, tell me about it. What, what does that mean to you? Well, interesting you ask. I, I believe Jesus was a good teacher. Uh, I don't believe in the virgin birth. I think that he gives us many good things to follow, but he clearly wasn't born of a virgin. See, I was a nurse, so I know people aren't born that way. I went to public school. I know that, too. And we had a long conversation. And what I found out was, very clearly, Aunt Puss wasn't a Christian. I'm glad I found out Aunt Puss wasn't a Christian. You know why? Because I had a nice conversation with Aunt Puss about what a Christian really is about who Jesus really is and what the Bible says. And you know what Aunt Puss thought of me after that phone call? Not very much. She called my mother-in-law. Basically told her I was an arrogant SOB and who did I think I was to call her up and question her faith. You know where Aunt Puss is today? She's dead, but do you know where she is? She's in heaven. It's nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with me. But when we found out Aunt Puss wasn't a Christian, you know what we started doing? Praying for Aunt Puss. And seeking every opportunity to talk to Aunt Puss. And we got our butts in high gear because Aunt Puss could have gone at any day. Aunt Puss got dementia. Aunt Puss lost her memory. But you know what Aunt Puss did every week? She went to services at the nursing home because she fell in love with Jesus. Who do you know in your life that says they're a Christian, but you're not quite sure? How do you find out? 
Jesus knew what was in the heart of people. Dang, that would help, wouldn't it? If we were going to share our faith, we look at people, whoop, whoop, whoop. Yeah, we could just tell. There's one, there's not one, there's... We don't have that ability. What do I do? Someone tells me they're a Christian. I ask them a question. Tell me about it. If you get this, what do you mean? You might want to push that conversation a little bit. If you get this, well, I'm Episcopal. You might want to push that conversation a little bit. If you get this, well, my family's all Christian. You might want to push that conversation a little bit. You understand what I'm saying? You might want to lovingly tell them why you're a Christian, why you love Jesus, who Jesus is. And they'll probably tell you something along the lines of, well, that's your interpretation of what a Christian is. They might get mad at you, folks. They might say, well, you believe that's wet water, but I'm a frog. Our job isn't to make them love Jesus. Our job is to share the truth. It's to be more concerned with telling people what is true than with offending them. I'm doggone glad I offended Aunt Puss. And Aunt Puss is probably doggone glad that I offended her, too. As we share the truth with people, I can make you a guaranteed promise. You will offend people. And I can make you another promise. One day when that person meets God face to face, they will be very glad you offended them with God's truth. But you best do it out of love. Jesus didn't come up to Nicodemus and say, Fool, you don't know what you're talking about. He said, in his mind, I'm sure, I love that man, Nicodemus. In fact, I made that man. And I want him to know how much I love him. And I want him to know who I am. Because I want him to have life to the fullest and I want to spend eternity with him in heaven. So I don't particularly care if I offend him for a moment. I might use a little sandpaper on the man because I want him to know what's true. Well, Jesus ascended to heaven. And most of the time now, who tells people about Jesus? People who know him. People who are born again. People who are genuinely Christian people. You understand there's no kind of a Christian. You, could you imagine going up to your parent as a teenager? Mom, Dad, I'm kind of pregnant. How do you get kind of pregnant? You're pregnant or you're not pregnant? I feel, doctor, I feel kind of dead. No, you're either dead or alive. You're either a Christian or you're not. Do you understand that? Take the term born again and understand this. The world's hijacked it. We live in a culture. Let me tie this back into the church thing. We've, we live in a culture where what church is has become lost. You know what church is? It's about people who are born again, wet water Christians, coming together to worship God, to hear from God through His Word. It's about people who don't know Jesus coming into a place where there are honest to goodness, scary born again people without snakes and wool suits, okay? And they see what wool, that, what wool people, what born again people do as they worship God. They hear God's word. And I don't creatively pick verses, tell people about what I think God might want them to hear. I simply let God use his word as he says it is to speak to people. And I don't worry about entertaining you all. You might never come back again. There might just be me and one other person out here. But I'm game for that because this is God's church, not my church. And as we live that way and as we turn church into what it is, we start to communicate to people what a real Christian is. See, the problem is, in the church I was at when I first came to faith with about 3,000 people, what would happen if a pastor preached a sermon about what it meant to really be a Christian, to be a born-again Christian? You'll see when Jesus does stuff like this, some of the disciples, you'll see in a little bit next week or the week after, walk away from him. That teaching is too hard. 
It offends people if you question their faith. But sometimes the truth is offensive if you don't want to accept it. Do you understand what I'm saying here? We need to know the truth. We need to share the truth. And we're going to do that primarily when we start to enjoy the truth. When we start to know more and more who Jesus really is. And this is why I call this sermon Snake Bit. Any idea? This chapter and verse is right. The book of Numbers. We'll flip over there. We're going to go to chapter 21. I'm sure this is the right chapter. Nobody look. I'll do this by myself. <laughs> it's not. What is going on with my mind today, folks? There is a story in the book of Numbers. I'll get it. This ain't going down this way. God, would you please help my mind work straight today? There's a story in the book of Numbers where the Israelites are out in the wilderness and they're questioning God's goodness and they're refusing to obey God and they're not wanting to follow God and God sends a bit of a plague on them. Does anyone know what he sent? Snakes. Thank you. I knew it was right. And he sends these poisonous snakes, they're called fiery snakes, and the snakes start attacking them. And look at what happens in here. From Mount Or they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and and against you. Pray to the Lord, so that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Folks, let's be honest. If we were in the wilderness and snakes started biting us up, would you be looking for a bronze snake on a pole or a machete? Would you be looking for some snake spray? Would you be looking for some little antibiotics? I don't know. Something a little more practical than a bronze snake lifted up on a pole? But you understand that God's solutions to problems aren't necessarily our solutions to problems. God's ways aren't our ways. God's ways are perfect. Our ways are not. Why would God send a a bronze snake on a pole to save people. Why would he make Moses make it? Think about it, that would take time. Why not just, boom, here's your snake, get people saved quick. There was a delay. Why? I don't know. But I do know this, the people didn't deserve that snake, did they? Why did the snake on the pole come? Grace and mercy. It wasn't based on merit. Why did Jesus come? Grace and mercy, folks. It wasn't based on merit. Nicodemus was looking to get right with God based on merit. The overwhelming majority of people in our culture are looking to get right with God based on merit. The overwhelming majority of people who call themselves Christians determine they're in a right relationship with God based on merit. And guess what? Merit ain't going to work. It's a bronze snake on a pole who actually is a man who was God, who was crucified, on a cross. That doesn't make sense to a lot of people. You know why it doesn't make sense to them? Because God hasn't fully opened their eyes. Understand this here. The people could not be saved unless God provided a snake. 
They couldn't do anything on their own. They would have all perished and died, but he sent a snake. And when did he send the snake? When people told Moses, we had sinned. A person cannot become a Christian because they intellectually understand who Jesus is. A person becomes a Christian when God somehow opens their eyes to the fact that they are separated from him by their sin. And they fall down before God and they say, God, I have screwed up. God, I can't cover that gap. There is nothing I can do on merit. I'm going to die. And God says, no, you're not. Look up. You understand that? You will see throughout, we talked about this a month and a half ago, predestination and free will. You will see throughout the Gospel of John that a person cannot become a Christian on their own. God has to draw them. God has to open their eyes. God has to send the solution which came in Jesus. They have to be born again. Jesus is very clear here. You cannot be born again on your own. It's something that only God can do. So what do we do with that? Do we just sit passively by? Well, if they're going to be a Christian, they're going to be a Christian because God does it, not us. Not at all. Because we're also judged based on our actions. The work of God is beyond our control. We are not held accountable for what God does. We're held accountable for what we do. How they play together is a great mystery that we can ponder uh, ad nauseum if we so like. And as we, as we ponder them, we can get to know God more fully, as we understand Scripture more completely. But here's what you need to understand. God presents every one of us with a choice. Every person who has ever been alive, every person who's alive today, every person that you and I know has a choice before them. And the choice is this. Do I believe God or do I not believe God? Do I understand who Jesus is? Or do I deny who Jesus is? Do I want to be a frog and call myself a frog? Or do I understand that God made me a person and no matter how much I want to hop and ribbit, I still ain't going to be a frog? Here's what we are. Every single one of us. We're people who are sinners who are separated from God. And the only way that we can get out of that predicament is to look up at God's provision of Jesus, not the bronze snake. And when we do, we become born again. What does it mean to be born again? It means that the Holy Spirit dwells in you and things start to change. Our desires start to change. Oh, it's a slow process for most people, folks. Our desires start to change. We keep on sinning, but all of a sudden, we don't want to keep on sinning. Paul talks about that in Romans. We want to pursue the things of God and not the things of the world. We understand we have an eternal perspective. And little by little by little, we realize that we have a privilege and an obligation to share our faith with other people. And we realize that as we come to understand who Jesus really is. Not just an intellectual thing for us to grasp, but a real-life person for us to fall in love with, who will guide us, who will provide for us, who will take care of us, who we can experience in, in, in complete reality. Think of this, folks. Imagine you were blind from birth, and you got married, and you never saw your spouse. Are they not real? You never saw your spouse for a day in your life, and, and they passed away in your 80s. You were married to them, let's say, for 55 years, and you never saw them with your physical eyes. You know one thing you would look forward to tremendously? The day you went to heaven and saw your spouse for the very first time. I'm assuming that no one here has physically seen Jesus. It can happen. I've heard stories of it happening, which, which I do not question. But here it doesn't happen very often. And I believe the reason it doesn't happen very often is because we live in a culture where we have God's word, where God has revealed himself to us completely, and the hindrance isn't the culture, the hindrance is the heart. If you go to a part of the world like the Middle East, or, or a, a culture in the Middle East, 
where you have a severe repression of Christianity. I've heard stories, direct stories of people who have had visions and dreams about Jesus and come to faith that way. But folks, here's what I'm getting at. I think sometimes we struggle with believing in Jesus fully and trusting him fully because we haven't seen him with our eyes. The next time you turn on a faucet and drink a cup of water, where'd that water come from? It ain't Pennsylvania American water. They cleaned it. Who made it? God. The next time you draw breath, where'd that air come from? The next time you look outside and you see people and animals and clouds and trees, who made that stuff? God is extraordinarily real. Who God is is revealed to us here. And as we read this and we pray to God to give us wisdom, to give us knowledge, to give us the ability to know Him, to experience Him, to follow Him, little by little, through our obedience, through our choices, we come to know who He is and we live a life of excitement knowing that one day, in not too very long, we're going to see Jesus face to face. And when I see Jesus face to face, on either side of me, I want to see people that I know and love. But those people who I know and love need to hear the truth to get there. I spent 20 some odd years never hearing the truth, making assumptions about what's a born again person. Oh, those are those crazy people in the South that believe in creation and don't believe in evolution. They're lunatics. Oh my gosh. I became a lunatic. I don't live in the South. I do believe in creation or revolution. But God has given me eyes to see the truth. I had to be offended. And God, the way I came to faith, only God could have done it. Okay, There was no clever planning on people's part. That was years and years in the making, and that didn't work. But one day, God decided to smack me in the head. I wish I was not so stubborn. You and I can't make someone come to faith. But what we can do is daily love people, daily tell people what's the truth. And here's what I want you to get out of today. Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus was a man who thought he knew how to be in a right relationship with God. And what was Nicodemus's vocation? He told people how to be in a right relationship with God. We live in a world where a man or many men and women think they're frogs, and they tell people they can be frogs like them too. You could turn on the TV at 4 p.m. or 5 p.m. any weekday afternoon on a variety of channels. I won't get overly specific here. And you can hear people talk about, if you want to be a frog, you can be the best frog you want to be. And if someone stands up and says, folks, you're not frogs, you're people, they're called intolerant fools. What we got to be is those intolerant fools, but who really love people, who say to people, let me tell you what's true. What's an easy way to start? Pick a friend, relative, associate, or neighbor. Ask God to work through the conversation and ask him this simple question. Are you a Christian? You'll sweat a little bit beforehand. You'll sweat as you go through it. But if they tell you yes and they really are, you know what you just met? You know who you just met? Someone you're going to spend eternity with. But if they tell you no, either directly or indirectly, you know what you got? An opportunity for Jesus to use you and an opportunity to tell somebody about the Jesus who you know, who is as real as day who came to die for them because they had been bit by a poisonous snake, which we call sin. And the solution, the remedy, the cure is sitting right there for them. Our purpose of being left here on this earth is not just to go through the tedium and monotony of day-to-day, taking occasional vacations and collecting Social Security and then passing away and dying. The reason that God left us behind in large part is so that we can tell a lost world who Jesus really is. 
A Christian is wet water. It's hot fire. It's born-again Christian, but you don't need to use a redundancy. Do you understand what I'm saying here? If not, I can't do it again. But here's the truth. The truth is that when we come to faith, when we follow Jesus, we have true direction in life. We understand little by little what our purpose is, what we're here for, what we're supposed to do, and how we're supposed to do it. We have true security. There is nothing we need to be anxious for when we come to know Jesus more fully. We have true blessings. We, I spoke to a couple people this week, and it's a C.S. Lewis illustration I keep falling back to. They are sitting in the filth of the ghetto, playing with mud, thinking they're having fun. And they have an invitation to go to the villa at the seaside and live there forever. But they don't want to leave the fun of the gutter because they don't know what the villa on the seaside really is. Folks, you and I have an invitation to the villa on the seaside. And when we go and spend time there, we can't help but run back to the ghetto and say, get out of the gutter, get out of the mud, because look what daddy has for you, and it's so much better than playing in that. You understand what I'm saying? But we need to experience the villa on the seashore before we can tell the people in the gutter how horrible it is, because if we're honest, most of the time we find ourselves playing in the gutter too. And it sounds kind of silly when we're telling them to go there, but we're sitting right here. Day by day, take another step closer to the seashore. And as we do, we start to live life to the fullest. You and I as born-again Christians who drink wet water and sit by the hot fire in the winter have a tremendous gift in Jesus. We also have a tremendous responsibility. Our life is not our life, it's His. We talked about that last week. As we spend time with Him, we get to know Him more. As we pray for patience and for perseverance, and and as we're able to wait and trust, you'll see that God does not come to wear us out. God does not come to frustrate us. God does not come to exhaust us. We do that to ourselves. As we pray, God, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me, the junk on the lens that we have of our desires goes away, and we realize what rest truly is, what peace truly is, what joy truly is, and we can't help but tell other people. So I leave you with this assignment this week. Pick somebody you love. Ask them if they're a Christian. Pray about it first. See what God does through it. Father God, I thank you for the fact that you came to talk to Nicodemus. I know that at one point or another, perhaps even to a degree today, we are or have been a Nicodemus. I also know that, Lord, when you uh, were crucified, Nicodemus came to get you. Nicodemus was a man whose heart you knew. He was a stubborn man. He was a sinful man. He was a prideful man. His faith was weak as he came under cover of of darkness, and his faith was weak as he came out of fear of what people might do, and God, I can certainly relate to that. But yet he was a man who kept coming, who kept looking, who kept seeking, and God, I would bet that one day those of us who love you will meet Nicodemus. We don't have the the end of the story in Scripture, but we have him early on in chapter 3 and late in chapter 19, and he, he seems to be there hanging around, God, wanting to know. And God, we know that whoever truly seeks you will find you. That is your promise. And you've never uh, misled a person on a promise. You've never not kept one. And God, he seems to be a man who, who sought after you. And God, we are a people who continue to seek after you, even as we know who you are, Even as we have truly come to faith, we continue to seek after you, to know you more fully, and knowing, God, that that is your desire, we know that that will happen. 
as we continue to seek after you and trust in you and obediently follow you. God, I thank you that you love weak people, that you love sinful people, that you love people who can't do it on their own because you came to do it for us. God, I thank you that being a Christian is not about doing stuff to be right with you. It's about the fact that we did and do bad stuff so you came down to us, that you were provided for us, that you came down from heaven, that you were lifted up so that as we look upon you, we can have eternal life. God, my prayer is simply this that you would give us a deep passion and love for you, that you would give us a continuing understanding of who you are, not just intellectually, but you would give us the wisdom that goes with that in our hearts so that we could live lives that are more pleasing to you and that as we do and as we know you more fully, we can't help but go out and tell people out of love who you are, not out of arrogance, not out of pride, not out of thinking we are somehow better than them, but understanding, God, that we are simply one of them. The difference is that we have been born again that your desire is that none should perish, but all should have eternal life, and that you have sent us to go out into the world and tell people about you. God, please equip us to do that. Please give us the words to say. Please give us the confidence and the boldness to go out into the world and lovingly, gently confront people with the truth and trust that you will work through us. Help us be more concerned with pleasing you than with offending people. But God, please let us see much fruit. Please help us not just constantly offend and receive a receive offense back to us but please help us have that joy of seeing people's eyes open and playing a part in harvest in Galatians 6 9 God help us not grow weary of doing good you say in due season we will reap if we do not give up help us Lord to never give up help us to reap help us to walk truly and deeply with you and be people who desire that day in the future when we will see your face with our very own eyes where we will be able to touch you with our very own hands And God, I trust that we will be embraced by you, amazed by you, as we spend eternity getting to know you more fully. Help us prepare in this life for what we have in the future and work to bring many alongside us through your power, your grace, your love, and your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.